Hello and welcome to the Without Limits podcast. Firstly, thanks so much for listening to episode one. The feedback has been awesome and it's given us real confidence that you're going to enjoy these future episodes. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down and exploring the remarkable journey of Hunter McIntyre, a true powerhouse of professional athleticism and fitness racing. With an impressive track record, Hunter boasts three world championship titles and holds four records in the sport. He's not just a force in high rocks, but also a three-time Broken Skull champion, a four-time Mud Run champion, a six-time OCR world champion, and the proud holder of the Murph world record. In this episode, we dive into Hunter's history, unraveling the elements that have shaped him into the phenomenal athlete he is today. From overcoming addiction and standing triumphantly on the podium, this episode is a riveting journey. Now, I know you're gonna enjoy this episode just as much as I did, and if you do, I would really appreciate you leaving us a review, making sure you're following the channel, and just sharing it as far and wide as you can. So with all that said, it's time to listen in. I'd like to welcome Hunter McIntyre, AKA the Bulk Pony, AKA Mr. Biceps Wins Races. Hunter McIntyre, welcome to uh, the Without Limits podcast. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a beautiful studio. Thank you, mate. It's actually, it's just been done. We just had it renovated. So you are one of the first guests, which is very exciting. I'm um, pretty good about it. Before we get started on kind of who you are, uh, Podcast called Without Limits. I just want to know what your take on Without Limits, Without Limits mindset, what that means to you. Ah. Well, I think the one thing that I'll tell almost anybody is sitting in a in a place in life where you're going to create limitations is already a, a deficit. Like creating this potential where the line is is a mistake. I think you should look where people have been before and then see how you can get past it. And almost everything I've done in the past six years of my life, I've been the world record holder. And I don't look, I mean, I, I reference what people did before me, but I don't look to myself as a current champion. I look at the next version of myself. And without limits is this idea that, fuck it, just go. And you'll find out when you get there. And if you do well, it's going to be fantastic. And if you don't do well, it's even better because you have a new reference point. Yeah, this is going to be a good episode. Yeah. Uh, mate, that's fucking brilliant. Um, so who is Hunter McIntyre? Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, elevator pitch. I'm a 34-year-old guy who's just trying to take over the world one day at a time, but in a positive mindset. I, um, I really always looked at life, and I try to live life like a mixture of Peter Pan and uh, the Terminator uh, met up and had a kid. Like, I do want to use my body to command and conquer and be the best version of myself, but I don't want to lose that love of life where I'm always smiling. I think people at a certain point in life lose that smile. I will not be that guy. I'll always be smiling every time you see me. I think that's what's so endearing about you. You've got that happy-go-lucky kind of mentality alongside a ruthless competitor, which is that you can turn on being a savage, but you can also show up and have fun. I had three older brothers, and none of us hated each other, but we beat the crap out of each other. So there was that competitive mindset at all times, but it came from a place of love. So if you can't show up and give everything you have, and you and I, if let's say if we decide to arm wrestle right now, and let's say you beat me, I can totally accept that and appreciate who you are for beating me, and I can smile afterwards. And then there's the guys who throw up their arms and walk away, and they're like, mm. just don't have that. Yeah, I love it. Every experience. So on the, I guess, the more playful side of you, you refer to yourself as Hunter. Yeah, the bulk pony. Bulk pony. Uh, is there any others? Thank you. Uh, Hooter, Bulk Pony, Biceps Run Races, uh, Brown James, that's another alter ego of mine. I um, I just love to live life as a character. Mm. Yeah. I, I was a big fan of WWE. I've got Macho Man Randy Savage right here. 
And I don't think Macho Man Randy Savage is his real name. Like, you have to have this, you know, other role that you step into. Every time I race, every time I do anything, if we go out partying, whatever, we dress up. And, uh, you know, you have this alter ego. You have a different approach to it, a little bit different energy. Um, brings a little pizzazz to life. I can really resonate. It's something that I, I adopt quite myself. I talk about myself a lot in the third person. Something actually pops up in my Instagram stories today. Me, six years ago on holiday, where I put a bandana around my head and I was calling myself Brown Rambo. Brown Rambo. So, uh, see, there you go. I can really relate, bro. Yeah. Um, getting into your athletic career, you are... I don't blow smoke up many people's ass when it comes to fitness and, and com competitiveness, but you are someone that I think is a complete outlaw. From the stuff that I've seen on social media, the way you talk about yourself, the way you talk about your competitors, but then also the way you show up at races and you actually walk the walk as well as talking the talk. I think it's, it's something that not many people possess. I think a lot of people can talk a good game, very people walk it. Um, that doesn't happen by chance. We obviously... I think over the last probably couple of years with exposure through IROC, people are getting to understand Hunter as a bit more household name. Yeah. How did you get to this stage? Where did, where did it all start in terms of training and the athletic kind of career? So the first time I ever did anything like at a level that I cared about was a half marathon when I was 21, I think. And, you know, everybody you know, probably has to do sports when they're younger or participates to some degree. My parents were basically like either get a job or get into sports. And I was I would always get the most potential award, meaning that you – you could be a star if you cared more. So it's like a backhanded compliment. And I just didn't care. Like, you know, I was a kid. I remember I kind of went through this whole rocky chapter of life where I had to go to rehab. I, you know, basically everyone was going to college. I lost all my scholarships, all my opportunities, and I got literally handcuffed and sent away to rehab for a year. That in itself was not that great of a position to be in, but I didn't mind. But what really hit me is when I got out of rehab and then I got to college for the first time and I was kind of, it's my grandfather's watch. He's the one who got me into sports. Basically off of his reputation, they let me into their college to get into their athletic programs to be a wrestler and a runner. When I got there, nobody wanted me there. They wouldn't even let me participate in practices, nothing. And I was like, God, like what value do I really offer to these people? Because right now I'm considered a deadbeat. So I just started training and I'd never trained before. So I started, you know, there wasn't really even Instagram or any of these things. I started to watch the very limited YouTube videos. I started training every single day based off the YouTube videos I'd watch. And eventually I got into the position where I could start to compete with the team. And I was like, this isn't either. Like these people don't share the same mindset as me. They're just players on a team. They're not champions in the potential of what I want to be. So I left. I dropped out of college. I was like, if I really want to be an athlete, I'm not going to learn how to be an athlete in college. I'm going to have to do it on my own. I'm going to have to go where the real athletes are, the pros. I moved to California. Square. Everybody's got to go to California. And by the time I got there, I was like, this is it. I'm going to figure this out. I signed up for a half marathon. I ran the thing. I won the thing. And I was like, okay, we've got something to start with. I ran a Spartan race with 10,000 people, and I took sixth place. I was like, okay, we've got another data point. And at that point, I came home to my, tell my parents, I was like, I'm not coming back to California. I'm not going back to college. And now my dad's a Harvard graduate. My ex oldest brother's a lawyer. The next one's a neurologist. The next one's a hedge fund guy. And I'm not going back to college. I'm going to go focus on becoming a, a champion in mud running, which is not a fucking career, by the way. Mm. It's, a, it's like a, just a, a theory, an idea that I built in my head. And I just started right there. And I just built up this idea that I would be a world champion. And I just was like, I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to do it. So I then started and I started, uh, I competed in obstacle course racing where I was able to get four world titles by the time I got out of that. 
And I did that until 2017. I then kind of switched over into another sector and decided I wanted to go towards CrossFit and then another sector and another sector. And if I sat here and tried to tell the whole story, you'd take about half the podcast, but I've traveled the world doing, you know, probably a dozen different professional level sports and really as close to the top as you possibly can be, if not being the very top. And I just kind of live life based on inspiration, not based on anybody else's idea of what I should do. It's what inspires me the most with passion. And, you know, I'm sitting in front of you here today because I met with CEO of High Rocks in a cafe in 2018. And he sat down and he's like, you're going to be the world champion of my sport. And, you know, shit, five years later, I've won it three times. I'd say. There's a, there's a lot there to, to unpack, and what I really like is the, the bit you told about your family story, because I can, again, really, really resonate. It's, it's weird how much synergy we have in our kind of stories and how they interlink. I was very similar, very successful father, orthopedic surgeon, comes from a, uh, a family of very well-educated lawyers, doctors, businessmen, and when I said I was going to go and play professional, professional rugby, yep. it was like, what, what is that? Um, and all I, all I wanted to become was a professional sports player. I didn't know whether it was football, rugby, athletics, basketball. I just wanted to be a pro athlete, getting paid to play sport. Yep. Um, and when you have the pressure of trying to keep your family, father happy, even though it might not be a decision that they supported at the time, once you go and be successful, then they're like, oh, there is something here. Like my son can be, can be successful. Yeah. The thing that he's very passionate about. One thing I just need to try and draw some some conclusion with how do you go from being in rehab i'm guessing alcohol was it what what why uh, it's a mixture of everything you know at the time there was just every drug was accessible to me and there was never a reason not to do it you know what i mean like you know if a girl told me she wanted to drink beer i drink beer if you told me you have a bag of cocaine i'll do cocaine if he had acid i'd do acid and i just kept on getting arrested because of my turbulent behavior um those um obsessive kind of Character traits, yeah, they, they they feed nicely into if you can channel it in the right direction with sport and business. So that, that probably served you well once you recognized it and you'd done the rehab piece. But how did you go from then that life to switching pretty quickly to want to be a world champion in sport? Well, there's a couple stages in between. So I was sitting at that college and I was on academic probation, basically. They wouldn't let me compete. So I started training, as I was saying, and I got really ripped. Like I was ripped as you could possibly imagine. I was getting into the diet, getting into everything. I was really just dialed in. I popped out of my bedroom in my underpants one day at a party, and I was like, yeah. And this guy looks at me and goes, you should be a model. And I was like, hell yeah, I should be a model. He's like, no, I'm a model, and I can get you a contract. End of that week, I was walking on a runway. Then about a month later, I flown down to Miami. I got signed for the first modeling contract. Flown back up to New York City, Abercrombie & Fitch. Flown back to this place for another campaign. Flown over to Europe for um, another contract in modeling. And now I'm just like with all these people who are the prettiest people on earth, and we're all in the gym training all day long, and we're running and we're biking and we're doing sit-ups, push-ups, run, whatever we can, and dialed in on our diet. And I was like, just all I existed was in a little picture. Mm. I was like, that's not me. So I now took this like robust level of fitness and I was like, I need to test it. And that's when I told you I kind of bumped into that first half marathon. Like I remembered, I was like, what was the one thing you were good at when you were younger? And like, there's not wrestling tournaments all over the country, but there's a 5K, 10K every weekend. So I signed up for that half marathon. Funny part about that half marathon is we went out hard and I raced and I'd never run over three miles in my life competitively. We raced so hard, 
we get to the finish line and I'm duking it out with this guy shoulder to shoulder. I'm ready to piss blood. I'm so tired, so beat up. We cross the finish line and I just beat him. And I'm so proud of myself. And they're like, hey, buddy, you have three more miles. That guy was only running the 10 miler. So I had to get back out there and just slog it through and keep on fighting for those last three miles. And like, I felt at the end of that thing, this like immense sense of accomplishment for actually doing something and knowing that I was good at it and the hard training and the hard reward. And also that other feeling of that pain and craziness that comes from only being able to reach into that level of your body. And I was like, fuck, this is it. This is it. Like getting ripped and taking a picture it ends in that moment as soon as that clip goes. Mm. But that soreness you have from those races afterwards, it survives for another week. And you just like, it really sits in your body and resonates. And I was like, fuck, this is me. Like, I'm a warrior. Being in a picture, that's, you know, whatever. But being in this moment of like battling it out and having this incredible story and feeling and like sharing the bond, like between whether I'm playing against you or playing with you was what I wanted. So I just started to do the research and I started just Googling whatever I could. And I was like, how do I become a pro athlete? There was no script. So I just started building it myself. And um, it was kind of like a one brick in front of the other. And I just kept on following the path that I had created. There's so many opportunities for professional athletes and pathways in America, more so than here in the UK. Yeah. What made you go down the route of obstacle course racing rather than the sort of traditional things? Was it... Well, shit, there was only two at the time, man. There was probably only two things. You could either be like an NFL, MLB kind of player, or you could like basically go do CrossFit, obstacle racing, or like professional running. At the time, or triathlon. There was like very few things, really. CrossFit was just starting to come up. Mm. And I wasn't inter interested in CrossFit, at least at the time. And the obstacle racing thing just felt wrong. Like... We were racing in like ski ski resorts all over the world. We're flying to these incredible places. You go to a CrossFit tournament, like no offense, but you're just going into someone's gym and just going to do some kettlebell swings and box jumps and stuff like that. Or we can go to Lake Tahoe and race to the top of a ski mountain. Or we can go to like Europe or uh, you know South America, wherever you want to go. And they the most beautiful places in the world. You're running through the woods and climbing trees and ropes. I was like, it's kind of macho. I like that. What is what does that life look like for a, a professional athlete doing those kind of races? Dude, is it paid? In the beginning, it was crazy. Like we we would travel in packs and we'd share hotel rooms. And typically, most races in the beginning would have an individual prize and then a team prize. So the individual prize, like you'd win maybe a thousand five hundred to fifteen hundred dollars. And you know we're all duking it out for that. And then the team prize, it was like cross country. It was like the first four guys across the finish line and the best results. We then split that prize also. So in a good weekend, I might walk away with like twelve fifty to like fifteen hundred dollars, you know. After expenses of splitting a hotel room, which was like a hundred bucks for a couple of days and a flight, I keep maybe five hundred, seven fifty, beer tab afterwards, whatever it was. And we'd race like two to three times a month. I was there was no, you're gonna have to clock up some races. To oh yeah. Living. I had a little notepad and I'd write everything down. I had my little math book, and then you know after three months of doing it. I got a call from Spartan Race and they gave me a contract. I got a call from Reebok, they gave me a contract. So within the first six months, I was fully paid. And it was like almost like catching this perfect wave into the beach. And I was like, I have to keep riding this thing. Um, I remember like month three of me getting into it, the CEO of Spartan Race calls me, he goes, hey, the number one guy in the world, um, we had a contract with him where he was going to fly down to Mexico and we were going to put a $10,000 purse on his head to see if anybody could beat him. He can't come. We want you. 
So they fly me to Mexico. I run this race. I'm, I'm terrified. I can't speak any Spanish. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like $10,000 on my head. This is my first opportunity. I don't know if there's like freaks living here in the mountains that are going to whoop my ass. And I got it by just like the hair of my chin. I beat these guys. And after that, he was like, all right, I can trust you. And then I moved to his house. And now I'm living at the CEO's house in the mountains and I'm racing. And I'm like, this is crazy. So any phone call I got, I took. Like, I just was like, let's go. And you, you had to be of that mindset. Um, you know, I just was like, I was living out of a duffel bag. I'm still 13 years later, I'm living out of a duffel bag. And, you know, now I'm in a totally different place in my life where I own companies and I have like staff that I have to keep an eye on. But back then it was like, dude, all I had was $20 to my name and like a stick of bubble gum to get me through the day and whatever tournament was ahead of me. Now I'm beginning to understand where the confidence comes from. Like you, I, I guess I've only seen a spotlight on your life for the last couple of years since I've kind of been following, like I say, the, the rise of high rocks. Yep. But now you see the confidence comes from years of, of hard work, competitiveness, and you're well prepared for all this stuff. Hundreds of competitions. Yeah, hundreds. Yeah. It's beginning to make sense now. Uh, you mentioned CrossFit. I think that's one that we want to quickly touch on. How did the CrossFit thing come about? Uh, and then we'll get onto your thoughts on, on CrossFit. Because you mentioned at the start, yeah, that was a path you could go down. I can completely understand that the, the local CrossFit box competitions aren't the most aspirational. They're not particularly well run. There are some, obviously, some better ones, but flying around the world doing the old school course races are definitely more attractive at that stage. Yeah. Well, I mean, just living, I just didn't see myself living between two bumper plates and that's CrossFit. Like you're just between bumper plates the majority of your life. And, you know, I have the utmost respect for CrossFit. I love CrossFit, the sport. I love the athletes. I love the company. I have like six CrossFit certifications. So I want to speak their praises, first of all. Um, and, you know, just in the way that we would work, like I would have a sponsorship through FitAid and then all of a sudden I connect with their athletes. Like, you know, Jacob Heppner is one of my best friends and he was one of the top CrossFitters. So I'd go fly out and train with him and we'd duke it out and have fun. And like, obviously he's way better at CrossFit than I am and I'm way better at what I'm doing, but we merge together in this middle ground and have a blast. And then all of a sudden, you know, as the sports kind of started to progress, we started to compete against each other. Like, you know, we had this event called Tough Mudder X, which was, we I would do the open every year and like, I would come top 100 in the world in one workout and then like 10,000th in the next one because I don't know how to like snatch. But, you know, I was always like, God, I could whoop your guys' ass if I really tried. And they're like, yeah, whatever, Hunter. I'm like, no, seriously, I'm going to fuck you guys up. And they came and started to compete in this series that I was doing called Tough Mudder X, the world's hardest mile, which was like one mile of obstacle racing meets CrossFit. Like, you know, you're doing dumbbell snatches, chest bar pull-ups, you know, lunges, thrusters, all kinds of shit. First year, I creamed, like, just crushed the crowd. Athletes from all over the world come. And I was like, fuck yeah. And then the next year, they invite all these top-level CrossFitters. You know, Patrick Vellner's there, Jacob Heppner's there. Like, really, like, CrossFit Podium Games athletes. And I whooped the shit out of them again. And everyone's like, yeah, you're good at what you do, but you can't beat a CrossFitter. And I was like, I just crushed them. And, you know, it was kind of a convenient timing where I had torn all the ligaments of my ankle, and I was just basically taping my ankle to compete at that point. I needed to take a break from running anyways. And I was like, you know what? Screw these guys. I was like, that's it. They've poked my chest enough. Like I'm going to do CrossFit now. So I contact some coaches and stuff and I start putting the work in, you know, my buddy, Mike Tremello was starting to help me out and he was always a really good coach and he had coached CrossFit games athletes. And like right around that time that like this idea popped up in my head, another one of those waves I was talking about just started taking me into the beach. Someone tells me, Chris Hinshaw, he's like, hey, man, did you know there's a rule in the CrossFit book right now that says that they can invite anybody they want at any time? And I was like, what'd you say? 
And now I just start this campaign with Fit Aid behind me. I was like, guys, get Hunter to the games. You know, we did not know if this there anybody was going to listen. And I'm trying my hardest. I'm hiring PR teams. I'm hiring anybody I can to try to get a hold of the staff inside of CrossFit. And they're like this. They're like Area 51, like that place where like the alien ships are built. Like you don't, you can't find them. You can't get a hold of them. So I'm two, three, four, five months into this campaign. I've had zero contact from CrossFit whatsoever. Like I'm sure people saw it, but nobody's saying anything. So I don't know if I'm building up this campaign for nothing. I then all of a sudden get a call from my buddy, Armin Amory goes, hey man, I'm having lunch with Greg Glassman tomorrow. He's like, I'm going to tell him what you're doing. And I was like, okay. This is big. And then next thing you know, he tells them and they're like, a, they're recording a podcast like this. And Greg's like, okay, I'm going to have my co- people contact his people. He's coming to the games. And I was like, did that just happen? So literally within like a week, I have a letter invitation to the games and now I'm just going to the CrossFit games. And I mean, it was crazy. It was one of probably the most emotionally challenging years of my life because I just went from being a world champion of my sport into this like vast like, you know, space of just nothingness where I didn't know if anything was going to happen. And I was completely in the unknown. Basically, like, imagine living here in a mansion on the beach on, on this side of the ocean. Life's cush. Got everything you could want. And you just know you want to get to the other side because there could be a greater thing when you get there. But now you're just in this gap where you don't know where anything's around you. You don't know if you're going to make it, whatever it's going to be. It felt like that. And also at the same time, People are shitting on me like crazy because everybody in the CrossFit community hated the idea that I was trying to campaign my way into the games. I remember that. Yeah, people hated my guts. And I finally get there and like I did my thing. I had an absolute blast and it was just like this whirlwind of experience. It was more like fighting off the haters than it was actually participating in the event. That's my biggest regret, at least of going through it. I think I paid too much attention to the hype up rather than the actual experience of competing. Because when I compete, I'm a fucking weapon. But I had now changed myself into trying to be this person who's available to the opportunity to come. Usually, I don't ask for the opportunity. I am the opportunity. I show up and I'm going to fuck you up. And like, that's who Hunter McIntyre is. You're coming to fight against me. Um, But I was like humbly asking, like, can I come play with you guys? Mm. And... Probably, I guess that's my only regret of the whole thing, but can I honestly say it was the coolest thing and, like, I'm so grateful? Yes. Um, and that's why I was singing the praises of CrossFit in the beginning. Like, I love the CrossFit and the community everything. I don't have anything bad to say, but that one year was crazy. Yeah, I'm the same. I think the, the CrossFit community is, is incredible. What it's done for participation, making proper training cool, what it's done for female training, I think it's incredible. And over the last couple of years, we've made a big conscious play to move part of our business towards the CrossFit community. Yeah. The difficulty lies in <clears throat> just how good you have to be a- across so many different things to be able to be competitive at that sort of level. And that's probably something you found out. Well, dude, I, I lost because of a handstand walk. Like I had spent so much time walking on just flat ground like this or walking over steps. And then all of a sudden, like <clears throat> rookie mistake. If you're going to go to the CrossFit games, you should train 30% of the time on turf. Like, I did the first event, which was 400 meter run, um, two or three legless rope climbs up to like a massively high rope, and then eight snatches at 185. Like all of that, I crush. But then all of a sudden, I got to the turf to do snatches, and I could not catch the snatch. I was like, oh my gosh, like because the the turf would just like suppress, yeah. and it was completely unstable. And then all of a sudden, 
rowing into uh, push press with kettlebells at like 50 pounds and into walking on your hands. I'm like, dominant. I was like, who's going to beat me in rowing and shoulder to overhead? Then I started walking on the turf and I couldn't balance myself. And uh, like, yeah, you have to know so much. You have to have so many skills like in the gym and then you have to have skills when it comes to the field day. Mm. So one thing I will tell anybody, if you're going to compete in the CrossFit Games, start training on turf. That would be my number one tip. There's the nugget. If anyone's listening here that's going to get to the Games, start training on turf. You mentioned, you've referenced twice, you feel as though there was periods in your life where you were riding a wave into the beach. Yeah. A lot of people talk about that as like, I guess a, a level of luck. But luck really is like it does, where opportunity meets preparation. Yeah. Again, it sounds like you just, whenever you switch your mind towards something, there's a, a relentless pursuit on just being prepared for whatever's going to come next. Well, first you have to get a surfboard, then you have to go to the beach, then you have to go paddle through all the fucking hard waves to get out there to be ready for the wave when it comes, and then paddle into the wave and then fucking stand up and ride that fucker. So there's so many stages to be even ready to get on that wave. I always put myself in the position to receive the opportunity. I don't just like wake up and all of a sudden a pile of gold drops into my lap. But when the wave comes, like you got to be ready and you have to be courageous enough to ride that wave. Like, dude, I, I wanted to quit High Rock so many times because there's not a lot of money in this thing. Mm-hmm. Like I've been the number one guy in the world since I've been in the sport and I make less than like $30,000 a year for High Rocks. But I recognize I'm like, there's something special here. Like, I know it's going to pop. I know that this is going to be received. I know it's going to be worthwhile. And not only am I passionate about it, but I know that it's going to help me get where I want to be next. And man, like being in that stadium this time around, like when I first started, it was empty rooms. Mm. And now like, you know, I don't know how many thousands of people were there, but you just know this thing is at a completely different level. Do you, do you feel it will pop once your time has come finished? Uh, there's nothing I can do about that, but. I mean, you do an incredible job of making it what it is. Let's um, let's come on to talk about that. I mean, firstly, congrats on congrats on the world championships the other week. Thank you. We um we obviously competed, um, in the, the everyday day on on Saturday, not in the in the elite fifteen. We watched the race though. What was it very evident is you are just lit leagues in front of everyone else. Uh, and you mentioned you got a call in twenty eighteen from the CEO. So how did that come about? Uh, my buddy Paul Booge. He, uh, just a friend of mine just like called me one day. He's like, I, I found a sport you're going to be the world champion of. And I was like, all right, whatever, Paul, you know, people are always like, if you told me you could contact me right now, but like, dude, I got something really cool. I think you should do. There's a million cool events at all times. I showed up and I, t- I took the meeting and a very interesting meeting. Like, you know, I've, I've known the CEOs of all the companies I've competed in. Cause I just, you know, we're in that circle together. I'm seeing them all. I'm always the face of the brand that we're competing in. And they're all just kind of interesting people in their own way. But this guy, I show up and he's in a pinstripe suit with a little Italian thin tie, a big bracelet that says daddy on it. And he's just like a totally different character than anything I've ever witnessed. I was like, who the hell is this guy? And I start to get to know him. And if you get to know Christian, the founder of the company, you almost don't even care about what he's trying to pitch you. You just care about him. He is such an interesting person. You want to just be involved in him in whatever he's in. Like he could be selling you a cup of coffee. It doesn't matter. He's incredibly charismatic. He's incredibly motivating, energetic, and just you're inspired by him. I mean, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And I told him right then and there, I was like, I really do like your idea, but I just am I'm t- starting my journey on CrossFit. I was like, you're going to have to put this on hold. So, uh, you know, that was 
in a in a um, in a coffee shop in 2018. I then went and competed all 2019, and then I showed up for the first time ever and competed in their first American event in Miami in December of 2019. So, I mean, when I had that conversation, I just stuffed it in the back of my brain. But then when I was ready to go, like I called them and I was like, let's do this thing. And it's been off ever since. How did that training and I guess preparation differ moving into High Rocks from everything you'd done prior? Did it, I'm guessing it, it was quite interchangeable, quite seamless. Well, you know, interestingly enough, like I'm really a, a, a student of sport. Like, you know, I was telling your buddy who picked me up here, like I have eight certifications. I read exercise science books like every day of the week and you know I will study the person who is the best of the sport and if I can't find out about them I find out about their coach if I can't find out about their coach I find out about the university we went to and whoever coached the athletes there like I'll study and I'm going to get the information that I want and I've used that kind of knowledge for years just to kind of build myself up into the athlete that I want to be and I built this really robust engine from doing all these endurance events when I was younger now I built this incredibly strong body from doing events like Broken Skull Ranch and um, things like the CrossFit Games. And I, I had had this whole base of endurance and now this really, really tough like brick shithouse of strength that I had built on top of it. And by the time I transitioned into High Rocks, like I wasn't the best version of myself, but I had a really good block of clay that I could start to craft. You know what I mean? Like eight years of endurance training, three years of really intense strength training. And now all I have to do is just polish the sucker. Mm -hmm. Since then, you know, obviously I've been, I started at 60 minutes and four seconds. And now I'm down to 54 minutes and seven seconds. And, you know, even though to some people they may say, well, that's only six minutes, but when you're at the very, very top of the food chain, you know, every single second is, you know, dozens of training, dozens of hours of training just to shave that off. Anyone that's done a high rocks with the pro weights individual will know that Anything close to 60 minutes is like, that's elite. So to get down to sub 55 is incredible. Yeah. Um, there was a, a time, I think you came out on, on social media and I thought it was brilliant. I thought the transparency, I thought the honesty, I thought the slight level of vulnerability was really important to just humanize yourself because as you said, you're, you're the Terminator mixed with, uh, who was the other? Peter was, Pan. Peter Pan, but yeah. certainly the, the Terminator comes across a lot and that competitive edge comes out. but. Anaheim, you were going for a world record. I think this was sandwiched between obviously the world championships. You just won the world record. Yeah, you could tell through socials that you were you were gun ho at making sure that you were going to be the world record again. Yeah, and then the news comes out that you had to pull out the race. I thought your your take on social media was brilliant, but talk me through that. Did is there has there been many times in your career where that's had to happen? I probably only dropped out of like very high level races three times. Mm. Two IROX, one um, obstacle race. In reality, like, you know, some people will say, like, you know, you're a pro, like, you know, you, so many people look up to you, and I'm like, well, good. Like, they should be watching, and if, I, if I'm going to try to display a good message, I'm going to show the one that matters the most, not the one that matters to you, hypothetically, in your mind, what have I should do. And, like, you know, I'm at the frontier of this thing, and nobody has been, you know, imagine we're just, like, going through a blizzard, and there's no direction whatsoever, and I'm having to look ahead and all there is is snow and I'm having to freaking stomp into the snow at waist high and I have to make the decisions of what's going to get me to where I want to go in, in the most timely way possible. There's no path. I'm at the front of this thing. People are following behind me. And if I am like this leader in this space, I have to make the right decisions because I have my own personal wants and needs and then I also 
do want to create a future for this sport in the way that it really motivates and changes the industry. Mm. And, you know, I am in a space where I want to set world records. Like, I mean, at this point, why would I do anything less than that? And when I got to Anaheim, I went out and did exactly what it would take to set the world record. And then I just didn't, I couldn't do it on the day. And at world championships, I was 48 seconds ahead of the world record, four stations in. And I just was like, okay, I can, I, I'm not going to be able to hold it today. So I had to pull back and I'm going to keep on riding that line. Like I obviously, I'm not going to drop out of world championships. I wanted that title. But um, I had a two minute and 43 second lead at one point and I then cut it down to only 55 seconds by the end because I just was like, chill out. Would you, I mean, on that, on trying to take world records, what do you think to the fact that every course is different? I know that the test is the same, the layout is the same, the stations are the same, but every course, I think, I believe looking at the times last year, there is some big discrepancies in in the courses. Yeah. So how does that play into your ability to try and hit world records? Are, are there certain tracks that you're going to identify as the ones where are fast and ones where... Yeah. I don't put much weight into it. Um, you know, in reality, like, people are not going to like me saying this, but you're probably going to do better on European courses. There's just something about the material that they use here in the carpets and the way that the sleds are weighted for some reason just because, you know, our stacks are this tall, your guys' stacks are down lower. So that way you can almost lift up the sled a little bit more because of the way the weight's displaced and it has less surface friction, so on and so forth. And the sleds are such a humongous factor in all of this because of the amount of lactic acid that builds up in your body. I'm getting really geeky now, but these are all things that if you're really going to try to push the limits of your body, whether or not it's the world record or not, you have to take in consideration. So was this 5407 that I just did better than the one I did last year in Dallas? I don't know. I mean, the one last year in Dallas was, you know, obviously an American course. It was a really good course because of the way that the layout was. Like you can see certain rock zones are really poorly designed for doing well. Other ones aren't. Um, so on and so forth. At this point, I can just tell you like it's horses, not courses. Mm. Like I know the most important thing to me right now is to beat people rather than to beat records even though i really like next year i want to hit 52 minutes i think that's where i want to be um hang on you just said to go from 60 to 54 is a big jump how are you going to go from 54 to 52 well i did all the work this season to get to 52 i just didn't do it i didn't get it i i at this point it's like it's like gambling you know what i mean like i have to I took this year and I put my poker chips down in this section, put my poker chips down in this section, and I bust. Now I've recognized after being in that place and feeling that experience, I'm like, okay, I can't bet as hard on these sections. Mm. I probably am going to need to really put hard efforts on the back end of the race after I've gone through here. Because I'll just tell people my strategy. It's not very hard to keep up. It's not very hard to figure out at this point. I'm going to try to beat the shit out of everybody in the first three stations. Yeah, I'm big enough to hold a skier pace that other people can can't um the sleds i can do the same exact thing on and the back end of the race that's where i kind of just try to let like you know my stamina hold me out but i'm going to do it all in the first three stations i'm going to get that world record i'm probably going to maintain my progress in these three stations and not try to push as hard anymore and i'm going to try to from the row onto the wall balls take off about 15 seconds of each station 10 to 15 seconds increase my running a little bit and i'll have it that's a lot to take off. I mean, you, you say that you're going to beat people on those first three stations. I argue you beat people way before the race even starts. But I'll take you back to the um, the social media post I saw. You were like, trekking up the mountain, I think, near your ranch. Yep. And you're talking about your comeback to High Rocks. Yep. 
and you said something, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something the best anyone can hope for is second place. That's the damn truth. And I, again, it just links back to that utter confidence in your ability and this mindset, which I'd like to talk about in a little while. But what was the preparation like before the World Championships? How do you stay so motivated knowing that largely no one in the world can touch you right now unless there is someone out there that doesn't yet know about Hot Rocks, that has a similar story to you, similar previous athletic career, which probably isn't, you know, it's not there because you're going to know everyone in that space. Yep. How do you say they're motivated? And what was that? My, what, what were you thinking about coming into, into the world champs? Because if you look at everyone else's times across the season, no one was even coming close to what the guys were lucky to go sub 60 in that league 15. Um, it's a cocktail of hate and joy. Like, do you have any friends in Horrocks? I mean, I have my friends that I don't train with any of the top guys, except for maybe Tom Hogan. Mm. He's my business partner and he's a great guy. Um, I think it's tough for other people to spend, like, you know, there's a reason why, like, lions all have their own tribes in different areas in the in the Sahara or the whatever, the safari, because if we get too close to each other, we'll try to kill each other. Mm. And, you know, I'm the top of the food chain, and I don't, like, come up and, like, step on your sneakers just because I can, but I think just being in proximity with other people that are higher up than you can really weigh down on you. I actually like being around people. I try to surround myself with better runners. I try to surround myself with stronger people. And I have to find a way to subdue my ego in that position. Now, I'm not often competing against people that are way better than me in my thing. You know, when I got into CrossFit, I really had to get humbled all the time. I get my ass kicked by girls. I get my ass kicked by guys. I get my ass kicked by masters, athletes. It didn't matter. I just knew that I wanted to get better. And the only way to get better was to be close to these people. So first of all, if you want to get better, like, you know, heed my warning. Get your ass kicked often and try to accelerate the process. Don't try to hide in your garage and wait until you're prepared to show up against the good guys because they're going to be fucking way ahead of you by the time you get there. As far as the mindset goes, you know, I said it's a cocktail of hate and joy like um, the Terminator meets Peter Pan. Like, I'm so lucky that I have this opportunity. Like, I think about it all the time. If you, if I met my 13-year-old self and I was like, and... Hunter met young Hunter, young Hunter, older Hunter. I'd be so pumped. I'd be like, there's a man like this that exists. Like he does whatever he wants. He wins whatever he wants. He can smile and grit through the hard stuff. Like that's a man. That's somebody I look up to. That's somebody that I wish I had met when I was younger and had like guided me through some of the hard shit. And I want to be that beacon for people. You know, I didn't have a lot of people that were going to help me through the hardship that I went through. So I want to be that beacon and I want to live life to the fullest so that when people do see this, when I'm writing my book, that they have this roadmap because there wasn't one at least to get where I am now and I'm lucky to have it. The other side is like hate. Like I hate the version of myself that I'm in right now. Like I'm going through this, like always consider myself to go through this metamorphosis of like the caterpillar into the cocoon, into the butterfly. I'm always trying to find the new butterfly version of myself and I see these aspects of myself and I, I critique myself every single day and not in a way that's like self-hate, like, you know, in like a really self-deprecating mode, but you have to look at yourself and be very critical if you're ever going to break through. And I see this thing that's in the other side, that beach that I keep on, you know, metaphorically reaching and explaining. I know what's on the other side and I have to be the person who's towing the line because in the end of the day, when I go to bed, I have to like say this prayer to remind myself of what's going to happen tomorrow to reaffirm it and to believe in it. And when I wake up in the morning, I have to say the same exact prayer because otherwise it's not going to get done. 
And then when I think of the people around me, like, you know, nobody's really going out of their way to get in my way, but there's some people that are not helping me up. Mm. And I remember I write these people down, like I, I put post-it notes on my computer of anybody that has kind of gotten in my way. And I'm not going to do anything to hurt them, but I'm not going to, I'm going to use that thing to lift me up. You know, this person made you look stupid. I lost a championship, you know. This person, like, you know, ran laps around you. This person said this about you. And, like, you know, I was like, Hunter, you can make those things true or you can shift it by the next time you see them and prove it wrong. And that's it. And I make it very simple. And mindsets, again, I can relate. There's been times where I've certainly adopted that similar kind of level of, of savagery. But I sometimes it can be quite destructive for me. Also, when I moved from trying to be a professional athlete to running a business and then becoming a husband and then becoming a father. So do you think this mindset allows space for any of those other things? Or do you think this is, because you look at most champions of the people at the forefront of their field in their sport, they don't have room for other things. And that might be why they're there. It's a toxic mindset. Yeah. I, I, I intentionally retiring, um, in the next like 18 months, I'm going to give myself till the year of 35, 34 right now. So like by, before I turn 36, I'm letting go. So you're probably only going to see me for two more championships because I know that I need to open up the space to have the family. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with my family. I'm obsessed with the family that I'm going to make. I, I know that in business, like I can't use the same mindset because it's so singular and it's so rare. It's, it's not helpful to the other people around me. There's a reason why I do individual sports and I've already started to like hone this craft of knowing what the next chapter is going to be. Like I've had to, Really, like, I've changed the, the books that I read. I've changed the people that I spend time with. I changed the questions that I ask because I know I'm going that direction. Um, you know, in the world that I'm in right now, it's pretty barbaric. Like, you know, it is somewhat of the, uh, you know, whatever you call it, the gladiators. And, you know, it's just like we sit around a table and we, we eat meat and we say brutish things and we wake up the next day and we clash steel. And we go hard all the time. And, you know, that lifestyle doesn't leave a lot of room at the table for people of a different mindset. And, and I get it. Um, but I'm a big believer, as I said, that whole macho man thing, like you have to believe in this presence of yourself. And if you don't, then you create room for leakage. If you don't think you're the champion, then you aren't the champion, if you know what I mean. 100%. I think everyone's got that, that competitor and that savage inside of them, but I think there's, there's, there's levels to that game. And you're clearly operating at the top level and you have done for, for a long time now. Uh, I know all too well that it's great it's great to be up there but it doesn't allow room for anything else and then you have to weigh up what it is you want next and I think for you like you've given yourself a time frame I think what's also really important and, and great to see is that you've identified and you're quite a, a well-educated gladiator most people that have that mindset don't have an edu like an education or make informed decisions off the back of it and I think probably you mentioned your dad the Harvard education and a few other things and actually, you mentioned that, that there was no one that has had written the rule book before you did. It was that, did your brothers, did they, did they do sport? Were you looking up to them? Was there anyone that, okay, fine. This watch is what I wear to remind me of all this stuff. So my grandfather, he was a master's Olympian, but he skipped sport. He was a talented athlete and he went to college and he got his degree, became an orthopedic surgeon, you know, started the family, got married, had five kids, and then he went back to sport. Mm. And... Of anybody I've ever met in my entire life, I've never seen a more well-respected man 
who was also able to balance family, work, and his pursuit of being, uh, you know, he threw javelin up until he was like 80. He loved doing track and field. And he never allowed this presence of being an athlete to destroy the other two. He never allowed the presence of being a family man to destroy his work or his track and field. He was extremely balanced, extremely kind. And I recognize that when there's somebody like that who was in my life, I, I can do the same exact thing. And, you know, five kids is a lot of kids. Being an orthopedic surgeon is a very tough job. He also then would volunteer at the, you know, all of the colleges around town. That's how I was able to get into a college because he would volunteer with all the athletes. Like the man did more than any 10 men. And anytime we walked into a building, people were like Dr. Garahan, Dr. Garahan, like everybody loved him. So I know that there's that opportunity. And, you know, maybe he was never as a high of a level of an athlete as me. And I'm never going to be a doctor like him. Maybe I could if I went back and got the education. But having that perspective and seeing somebody who had done it before, especially someone who's so close to me, I recognize that there's that opportunity. So, you know, right now I'm driving around in like a monster truck and eventually I'm going to pull those keys out and kind of get the minivan, if you know what I mean. We'll come on to what the minivan looks like afterwards, but let's just bring it back to the everyday gladiator. Uh, that's not operating at Hunter's level. What advice would you give them for higher ops? What sort of things should they be thinking about um, coming into training and competing? Because when you go to one of those events, you see the level levels of, of, of athletes. You've got the the 60 minutes, the, the one hour 10s, the one hour 20s, one hour 30s. I think there's everything up to one hour 52. Yeah. All different shapes and sizes. Everyone there for different reasons. Some uber competitive, some just participation. I think that's the, the beauty of the sport. I'd argue that at the, at the top level, sometimes... I mean, it was great you guys could compete on Friday night by yourselves. For the more competitive guys on the Saturday, it would have been great to, again, have start times and things that allowed the more competitive, faster guys to run and the track be a little bit more empty. But what would advice would you give to the, to the guys that are looking to get into it? And, and how would they go about training? Well, first of all, I would say stage one is the plan that you're willing to do is the plan to start with. Like, get moving. I, I think the biggest thing that I've recognized is I really have a hurdle to get through, which is just getting people to move regularly. Mm. Um, once you get through that, like I always, if people want to come train with me, I was like, can you prove to me that you're going to cover 10,000 steps a day for 30 days? If you can do that, I'll train you. Most people never get to that point. I say, take a screenshot every single day for 10,000 steps. So moving is important. And we're talking about people that are just getting started. Then... I think like having a proper education point and also self-reflection point, meaning like you have to look yourself in the mirror and know what you're weak at and what you're great at. And then having a good resource of somebody who's going to navigate that for you. So whether or not it's finding a coaching program like yourself, we have coaching programs, finding somebody like, first of all, I would just buy like one of these PDFs and start reading through it and like fine, fine tune your own little process, dabble. And then if you really want to get into it, I would say find a coach. And just invest in yourself. I invest in a coach every single year. Mm. Like I'm top of the top of the food chain, and I still hire coaches to really just look at me and tell me what like I need to do. I go to a running coach. I go to a strength coach. I go get my VO2 max. I go get my RMR. I need some information. And this is that's some expenses, but at the same time, like if you want to become passionate about this experience, invest in yourself. Never, I've never invested a dollar in myself and said, "Oh wow, what a waste." Um. I'll tell you about high rocks. Like it's long, it's hard. So don't think that just being in the gym and doing like 21, 15, nine of movements and doing 30 minute jogs are going to get you through. You will hit that point where you're going to regret the fact that you didn't put the work in. So if I always tell people like 
your average pace for a high rocks is probably going to be the average pace of your half marathon. If you haven't run a half marathon, then you're already in a bad place. Be able to run a half marathon because your body is like that. My half marathon time is, you know, a 10 miler is probably a better way of putting it. But my half marathon time is I'll get close to an hour and 10 minutes. You know, that's within proximity. Of, half marathon, hour yeah, and 10. That's within proximity of, of my, my uh, high rocks time. And that's just constant movement. There's no wall balls, burpees, sleds, any of that kind of stuff. So be able to move that distance and then start to refine it and start to work on the skill of the ski, the sled, the everything. Um, another thing that I'll tell you guys, and we're just keep on getting geeky. I believe in periodization. I think you should take periods of time where you spend time on strength. You should spend time on endurance and then you should blend the two. Being this person that's always in the gym, just going rah, 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 blending the two all the time, you, you will not have these new layers of foundation that you're going to be building off of. I get strong as fuck in the off season. And I, I can, I literally get up to 200 pounds, hundred kilos, um, 220. And, and then I bring myself down and I show up with more horsepower than anybody else. And then I just get fit from there. And I just kind of keep myself polished in the strength. You might be the kind of person where you're so strong, but you look like a Titan you might not need to do as much strength, but you need to do a really big block of endurance in the off season and then start to come back towards the center. Yeah. It's, it's, we actually released an ebook not too long ago about why you don't just do high rocks to get good at high rocks. And it was talking about the different athletic qualities you need in isolation that you then bring together to, to be a better competitor. And I know, you know, the training that I've done, rugby, mixed model fitness, like always prioritizing some endurance and strength training blended is going to get me there or thereabouts to be competitive in high rocks, more so in the doubles than in the individuals at the, at the top level. Yep. One thing I really recognized from my first competition over a year ago now, when we started looking at the top guys, is the times that they can run for their five, their 10K, but more so the half marathon. So, so it's really cool that you, you mentioned the half marathon because I think that is the, the benchmark of of one, what you need to be able to achieve just to be able to endure a high rocks event, but two, bringing that time down is going to be really interchangeable and, and beneficial to your high rocks time. One hour 10 is incredible. Yeah. Uh, I'm like a 112, when I say 110. What's the five and 10K times? Probably right now, like a 1550, 1545, and then 10K, it's like a 3230. Uh, 3230. Because I get, so I do a QA every Sunday on, yeah. on my Instagram. And obviously, like, I look good, I can I can perform, I'm competitive. And everyone's like, oh, when are you going to go and, you know, when are you going to win High Rocks? I remember questions like, when are you going to go to the CrossFit Games? And I look at, I, I respond like, you look at Hunter's Times. This guy's running, I actually say sub 16. I said a 33 minute 10K. That was my yeah. kind of educated guess. And I'm miles away from that. Most people are, but now you realize what it takes to, to go and run this all the times. Well, yeah, it's it's just years of it. My biggest influences for training for this sport, if you guys want to learn more about it, is I, I cross-country skiing. If you want to study sports, study cross-country skiing. I actually study rugby players a lot because they have great stamina and strength. Mm. So that's kind of like that middle ground. And then the other thing is cycling, super high-level cycling. And then, you know, I use cross-country skiing as the closest thing you can get to our kind of energy system switching because it's very endurance based and then very explosive based, which they'll do. And then rugby is one of these kind of things where it's strength held over time. It's not stop and go as much as you would imagine like American football. And then last but not least, cycling is one of these king things where they get down to the equation, the science of it all. They have a strength to weight ratio, like these equations where they found out if you can move six, six to 6.2 watts per kilo, 
um, over these tests, you will win the Tour de France. I come down to the point where I study these three things and I come up with my own versions of the equation for, for winning high rocks. For somebody like you, like I could take almost any person and I could literally put them through a battery test and I could tell you exactly where you're going to finish, you know, plus or minus five minutes, and then where you need to go for the next like year or so to get there. Yeah, my weakness is undoubtedly the running. When I, when I look at it now, we came off the ski second. Um, I mean, all, all of those stations are like bread and butter to me because I've pushed sleds, pulled sleds, done all that stuff a thousand times over. It's just, just the running that lets me down at, at, at that top level. Uh, you mentioned there the the, de the devil in the detail. Is that, is that kind of when you talk about your body weight? Is all that stuff calculated? So you know you need to come down to this weight to run this time and, and hit the world record? I need to be under 195 to hit 52. And I, I raced at 202 this time. But that's because I, I just couldn't get the weight off. I started to get pretty overtrained like around April. Okay. Yeah. It's crazy how much goes into it. But now you realize why the level some athletes are, are at that level. Uh, let's just move into training I, I think one thing's really interesting for me in particular is what training looks like not necessarily just for high rocks but maybe a typical day is it is it two days five days a week is there rest days six days a week two times a day off season like we're coming up into i'll start doing singles but you know i use things like iron mans like i'll train for iron mans all summer so what i'll do let's just say right now this is a very extreme uh, thing that I'm going into, but I'm going to go hike the Appalachian Trail for three weeks and hike, hike hike 30 to 40 miles a day. That's uncommon, but I wanted to have the experience of like this mental detachment. Um, but when I get back in July, I will start to run for about 90 minutes a day, bike for about three to four hours a day, and maybe swim maybe once a week for like 90 minutes. And I'll do that six days a week, but I'll focus on longer, slower things. I'll call my mom as I ride my bike, you know, I'll listen to podcasts all through the mountains, just chilling out, building this like very robust engine of about 15 to 18 hours a week. Um, nothing hard. It's so six sessions on average around three hours per session. Yeah. And I'll be in the gym about three days a week, pumping iron. Um, I like to do supersets in the summer, just build up like a really tons of repetition volume. After that, um, excuse me. After that, I'm going to go into the fall and I'm going to try to set the world record for Murph again. And I will start to now pick up doubles and I'll start to, those super sets were like really high volume sets and monster sets. So I'll go from like banded pushups into dumbbell press into, you know, I don't know, like TRX rows. just like really pump the shit out of my muscles. By the time the fall comes around and I've built this really long volume base, I will now start, start to add intensity. I'll switch over to like a 20 rep back squat program, really just beat the crap out of my legs, start to drop the volume of strength and increase the intensity. And then I'll start to bring in um, these double a days where all of a sudden like I'll do a 20 rep back squat on Monday morning and in the evening I'm doing track repeats of like, you know, 10 by 1000 and it will probably be at like world record pace and usually you want to get faster than that eventually. And I just kind of start building things up like huge volume and then I start to start to drop in volume and then I start to increase intensity. So it's like a, you know, splitting scale. Yeah. You get that kind of stuff. By the time January comes around, I will have built my volume. I will have built my strength and now I'm going to start to build my specificity, the tip of the spear. So then I will have about, you know, by February, I'll start this three month program of what I just got through to peak 
for High Rocks World Championships. And like at that point, I should be in like 52 minute shape. Like everything should be dialed in. My my 10K time as sharp as possible because I've done all this work. My muscular stamina and ability to hold lactic, like, you know, lactate threshold inside of my triceps, my chest, my back, everything, not just my legs are built up also. And like, you know, I also, to be totally honest to people, have spent years of being able to actually do this stuff. You can't listen to this podcast and listen to what I'm doing right now and say, that's Hunter's plan, that's my plan. You're going to get effed up. Like, it just, you will. Like, I just tried to switch over into a totally different sport. I was trying to paddle my way into the Olympics. I studied what the best guys were doing, and I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't start there because I never would have made it. My body was not able to hold that position. My body wasn't able to hold that kind of level of strength, like they were just so far ahead of me. Even though I wanted to be there, I was able to suppress my ego and not do that. So that's another piece of advice for anyone listening. Um, to get down into the real details, I'm probably biking 10 to 15 hours a week. I'm running for four to eight hours a week. And I'm in the gym at the highest level, maybe five to six hours at the lowest level, 90 minutes. So we're clocking 20 to 25 hours of training a week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and I also like to do kind of buildups. Like I like to do like a 15 hour week, 18 hour week, a 22 hour week. And one of the methods I created and anybody can use this, you have probably have to be educated enough to do it properly. I studied, as I said, the cross country skiers and I found this formula that they use where they would do week one. They do the lowest amount of volume and very or very intense sessions, extremely intense. Week two, they would do middle volume and three intense sessions. Week three, they do super volume and two intense sessions, really short. So that way in a four week block, you're able to hit both sides of the spectrum. Now, when you're a hybrid athlete, you need to take these hybrid approaches. So once you get away from the, the periodized early blocks, then you're starting to go into the hybrid blocks that, that can be very, very effective for people. Um, and I found that made me really good at peaking. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into this. I think, yeah, you made a good point if you are listening to the podcast and you're looking at how you become a world champion and world record holder, just appreciate all the things we spoke about from the, the first mar half marathon race back there. So perhaps that's where we, where we get people started. Yeah, and back then, dude, I think about the training I did. I'm like, you're such a dummy. You have to go through that. <laughs> yeah, completely. Oh. Uh, okay, so just last bit on High Rocks, I just want to quickly touch on it. So you mentioned you started to become a little bit more specific from January, February. Yeah. Have you already identified the races that Hunter's going to be rushing next year? No. Fine. I would like to. Is would, how, many, how many would you look to do a season before the World Champs? Five to six. What I'm going to try to do next year is I'm going to try to set the doubles males, double uh, mixed doubles, and then the team relay world records. I think that'd be so cool to just be like, hey, listen, I'm holding all four crowns. You're going to meet your partners? Um, I might race with Kent or my buddy, Tom Hogan, uh, whoever's like in better shape when the calendar hits. Um, Megan Jacoby is probably gonna be my female partner. And then mixed relays, I think would be awesome. Like we get Megan and, uh, the world champion Lauren Weeks on the female side, myself and Kent, just get the Americans holding on to the title. That'd be badass. Nice. Uh, on training as well. So your ranch is quite famous and people that follow you. Yeah, was that a conscious decision to have your base up in up in the mountains? How long has it been going, going on there? I mean, it looks like a place of of sanctuary. I watched when George and uh, Ross came and trained with you. Yeah, that place is awesome. I mean, the jealousy it brought is and the FOMO was was insane. So, 
how did the ranch come about? Is it it's obviously a conscious decision to try and train at altitude and just be secluded away from everyone else? Well, it kind of goes back to that gladiatorial, rocky type style. I was smart enough at a young age to recognize that that level of seclusion is is necessary. It was for me at a certain level of maturity. Back then, as I said, I went through some hard times doing drugs and drink and so on and so forth. The vices of the world were calling to me at all times. Being up on top of that mountain was just a sanctuary. Like it's hard to get to, it's hard to get away from. And like I would have to put in work to go get where I wanted, like if I wanted to party. So Malibu, the place that I've had, I've been living there for 10 years. I moved out there on a whim with a couple of my friends. Just, we just made the decision. We're like, F it, we're going to California. Like we're, we're going to make it. We're going to become stars. And then I found this place and I was like, okay, this is where, this will be my dojo. And I started out with like, you know, just a corner with two kettlebells and a TRX. Now I have an Olympic training like village basically there with $60,000 worth of equipment that I've accrued over the years and there's world titles all over the wall. And like, I really have a specific design. Like, I'll give you a crazy thing. I have only my achievements in the gym to remind myself of hard work deserves reward and gets rewarded. In my office, I only have the things that I've failed on. I have things of races that I've dropped out on. And I remind myself every single day that I'm like, failure is available if you choose it. So do something about it. So positive mindset inside of the gym, only positive mindset, only positive people in the office. I remind myself that we sit down here and we put in hard work and you have to like stay. I don't like the word humble that much, but you have to stay humble enough to realize that you have been beaten before. So I keep those kind of things um, around me. Then I also have a cabin up in the mountains where it's about 90 minutes to two hours away, which is an altitude camp. And that's where that's like the rough and tumble side of my lifestyle. Malibu is very polished and fantastic and it's my, my home. But at the same time I built, like we always go away to training camps. I'm a big believer in like, you know, there's a reason why when you get into the military, they send you to boot camp. you have to be broken down and rebuilt. So I leave my, you know, Egyptian cotton, nice pool, you know, lifestyle in Malibu. And I go up into the mountains where we all have cabins up there and there's just rustic weights hard ass mountains to climb. It's just so brutal out there. There's not a lot of amenities. There's not pretty girls. There's nothing but hard work up there. And I don't live up there full time. I only go up there to like hone my craft, to remind myself that I came from this place and I will stay in this place until I get my job done. When I'm in Malibu, sometimes I'm like, well, you know, I could just go to the spa today or kind of hang out and relax or have a date with this person. And I'm just like, mm-mm. I got to go to the dojo. It's a lot of hardships to put yourself through. I mean, it's commendable and it's, it's admirable, particularly someone like me, like looking in. It's a lot of hardship to put yourself through for not much rewards. I mean, being the world champion, being a world record holder, the success and being able to build your supplement brand off the back of it, all those things. I mean, I'm sure it's great and you live a nice lifestyle, but you mentioned what High Rocks pays you. You know, to put, you, put, you literally put yourself through what the top athletes in the world who are being very well remunerated for those efforts do. Perhaps I'm more so, particularly when you look at like in the UK footballers, for example, to go and be the best. Yeah. It's a lot to put yourself through for not much reward. So what, what is the motivation there? Well, I'm not rich in cash, but I'm rich in titles. You know, I, I sit down, I'm very lucky being in a place like Malibu, you get to know millionaires, billionaires, superstars, all these things. And I'm sitting at the tables with them. Like there's a mutual level of respect that goes across us just because they own a multi-billion dollar company. And I'm a guy who runs high rocks. Like 
they understand the work that it took to get there. Mm. And I'm not saying this to brag about my friend group. I'm talking about like there is a certain level of richness that resounds with all people. Like, you know, we recognize hard work. We recognize people that have put themselves in those positions. And I feel rich at all times. Yeah, sure, I don't have the biggest bank account in the world, but I'll get that. As soon as I retire from this, I'll, I'll conquer the world that I want to in business, and it will be just as transferable. And I don't look at myself as a, being at a disadvantage. Like, I look at myself as actually being at an advantage because there's millions of doctors, there's millions of lawyers, there's millions of CEOs. I mean, every year there's only one world champion in the sport. And what I had to go through to get there is incredibly arduous, and I, I, I have this really rich base of just going through that. And when I look back, I'm like, damn, like I sit down at the desk sometimes and I'm doing work and I'm like, yeah, this is annoying, but it's not hard. Mm. There's some of these sessions you go through and places you have to be in and that no one wants to be in. And I'm all by myself out there. When I'm in the office, I'm sitting at desks like this with people and everyone's having a good time. I'm like, this is cush. This is great. So... No, I, I, don't, I don't really care about the money. Like, I, mean, I thought about it. Um, like, I didn't want to wear the jersey that they want us to start in um, at the High Rocks World Championships. And I was like, fuck it, I'll race without it and I won't take the money. I'll just get the title. I didn't care. I cared more about what I believed in than the potential of making $19,000. At this point, money has nothing to do with it. So you... You chose to take your top off and... Well, they didn't, they, they wanted me to not even, they wanted me to start with it. I agreed to keep it on for two stations and then I ditched it. But um, yeah, I didn't want to. That's power. The, we'll, I want to just touch one more time on the mindset, but just um, going back to the gym quickly, because I, I'm a huge fan of gyms. We haven't had a chance yet to, to see our gym, but we pride ourselves on having the best facilities in, in the UK. I've seen, I've seen pictures. Uh, your gym is sick and obviously it's built for purpose not overly high tech it still goes back to that kind of like raw kind of dog type gym spit and sawdust which is actually how i came up through rugby and the gyms that i have gave me the passion for wanting to go into fitness yeah uh it's just that the sort of clientele that we have require probably a slightly more premium experience than we were used to yeah but my my attitude my, ment my mentality the relationships were all forged in spit sawdust gyms sweaty fucking high fives hard work you know um and that's something when I look in at your gym, that you, you've maintained that even in modern day. Well, listen, there's a lot of really nice pieces of equipment, but um, like, you know, the clang and bang of those steel plates, iron plates, when you get up in like a squat and it's like, ring, like rings, bumper plates don't do that. And there's something iconic about like pumping iron and feeling that and grabbing a bar that's got like rusty knurling and stuff like that compared to like this Alico bar. It just hits differently. And, you know, sometimes I just will be like, screw the gym, dude. I'm going to go chop wood. I've got literally 30,000 pounds of unchopped wood just sitting in my yard right now that I'm going to go crush when I get home. And for some reason, yeah, again, I know like a good squat session is probably going to increase things, but then all of a sudden there's that mindset of, oh, I just chopped and moved 30,000 pounds of wood, or I could have done five by five at like, you know, 355. At this point in my, my life, I can't, I can't say that another squat session is going to change me, but sometimes doing something in that extra regard of like being really hard, mm. um, is what's going to change me. Like sometimes I'll just go in the backyard and I've got like this, one of the first pieces of a training equipment that I had is a tire 
and the fire department donated me a hose and I turned it into a rope because I couldn't afford a rope. And it's on the side of a hill. And I think you probably saw it in George's video. We pulled it up. Mm. I have a really nice like patch of turf with sleds and every piece of equipment that's necessary to win High Rocks World Championships. And I walk away from it and I go to that tire. That's where I started and that's where I'm going to finish. That thing is hard as fuck. And I stuff rocks and weights in it and I drag it up and it tears the skin off my hands and it's in the hot sun and it's not an air-conditioned gym. And I think about it. I'm like, nobody else is doing this. And that's why you're at the frontier. I was like, you got to keep this up. Um, sometimes I won't go on runs. I'll just grab a machete and I'll just go into the woods and I'll just start hacking away and making trails. And I'm like, I'm not going to take the trail that has been made and been polished. I'm going to go make the trail that I want to go on rather than the one that's available to me. And, you know, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm the biggest hardo in the world. I have a pretty cush life. And like I, but I, I will tell you, it's these little things, these little degrees that if you do a million of them, it's what moves the needle. You know, the one percent. Where did the um, where did the trash talking, shit talking come from? Probably my brothers. Probably my brothers. My dad. You know, as I said, nobody in my family treats each other poorly, but it's never an easy day. You know, if I wake up, if I had not won the world title, everyone in my family would be like, "Um, if you're gonna do it again, don't waste your time." You know. It would be one of those kind of conversations. I go home, my friends, I remember I took second place at High Rocks, fourth place at High Rocks World Championships a couple of years ago, and then second place at National Championships. It was this time that I wasn't dedicated. I just was like in a window of time in my life where I was checked out. And my friends called me number two every single day. Colin, if you're listening to this, get fucked. <laughs> you would just be like, what's up, number two? Number two, text me, number two, number two. And I have literally won every event since then. And it's it's those kind of people that keep me motivated. And I'm not ripping people a new one around me because I want to see them do worse. I'm reminding them they could do better. Mm. I'm giving them a little spice. I mean, for me, don't lose it because it's, I think it's what brings entertainment to the, to the sport and the sport of it. So it's, it's, it's refreshing to see someone who's such a cutthroat killer, but at the same time can have fun with it. And I think that's something that I personally have guilty in the past. I've I've often been guilty of having a resting bitch face because I'm not having fun whilst I'm zoned on something. Yeah. But I think looking, finding ways in which you can enjoy the moment as well, I think is really important. I'll tell you something, just to let you in on a piece. My my roommate is like a big yogi meditator, like sometimes meditating four times a day. Because if you ever catch yourself in like one of these like pensive intense stares, he's like, move your face around a lot and it will relax your energy so much. So if you catch yourself in that position, Open up, do that. I know it may look weird. Who cares? And it does just relax you. You're like, oh, okay, whoa. Take it easy. That furrowed brown intensity, and that saved me a lot of energy also. I'll find myself in a lot now. Uh, on to just, I've got one, one question I want to ask around life. We, we've touched on it. Balance isn't a thing in your life. Yeah. I don't think it's a thing in any, any champion's life or anyone that's achieving incredible things. I think it's something that we, it's an idealistic mentality for some people i think some people are looking now to be over compassionate and try and find balance because of the detrimental effects of what social media and people like yourself can play on people if they're going to be uber obsessed with something to achieve a goal i personally don't feel that way i personally look at people like you and i have nothing but respect for that way of living uh but is there room for anything else how do you balance anything outside of high rocks you're obviously out in the mountains 
pulling tires up, doing all this crazy stuff, invariably by yourself most of the time, having to keep yourself motivated. Is there anything else that has, you have space for? I think if you get to know me and you talk to any of my friends, you'll notice that I have a big heart underneath, like, you know, this layer of like impenetrable muscle and intensity. Um, and I'm not like saying that to talk myself up, but like, I think people see that. As I said, the Peter Pan side of me loves life. And I always have to remind myself of that. And a big piece that I got into a couple of years ago, a guy, Bobby Williams, he changed my life. This man who I met when I was 26 and I was just full of like piss vinegar and rock and roll and sex. He just sat down and talked to me one day. He goes, hey man, like all you do is fuck, fight and party. I was like, yeah, well, what, what else would I do? He's like, you know, he's like, do you ever like keep energy rather than just throwing it out all the time? He was like, what do you do for yourself? What do you do to grow yourself? And you know, the guy was twice my age, still is twice my age. Um, and he was more muscular than me. He was stronger than me, faster than me, smarter than me. And I couldn't avoid it. Like we would go rock climb together and he would climb the route faster than me. And he'd do more pull-ups than me. He'd lift more weight than me. And I was like, okay, this is somebody I can connect with on that level. But then I've never connected with a man or anybody in my life on this other level. And this guy was telling me these things and he started to teach me about this other approach to life. So I started to read all of these books, not necessarily on spirituality, but on mindset. And like one of the biggest things I've recognized, and I try not to like buy into it too much, otherwise you can lose your edge. But I recognize that everything that we believe in right now, we're attached to. And if we're able to disassociate attachment, then we can't really ever be hurt. And I'm of the mindset of like, yeah, sure, I'm a champion, but what is a champion? You're only a world champion because they put world champion or world championships before the race that you ran. Mm. So the significance is really only in the world, not in the actual action. It's the title. So I try to remind myself that I am just a guy. And I, I remind myself that when I go out to drink beers, I'm just a dude drinking beers with my friends. I'm not a world champion drinking beers with my friends. When I own a business, I'm not a CEO. I'm just a dude who's selling supplements. You know what I mean? And I try to disassociate with the intensity of the mindset that I put myself so much into every single day. And the reason why I'm going on this hike right now for three weeks is because I'm making more money than I ever have in my entire life. I've got 10 world titles now. I've got homes in three different places. I got three different cars. Like I, I, I have everything I could ever want. And then I sit there with myself sometimes and I'm like, well, wait a second. Like, what does this all really mean? Because sometimes, because I'm building so quickly and conquering so quickly, I'm never enjoying what I just got to. If you're Alexander the Great, it was your ultimate dream to take over, you know, this region of the world, and then you're immediately on to conquer the next session, why did you even conquer this thing to begin with if you're not even going to get to sit there and resonate with it and enjoy it? So I always try to pull myself into that place. And then I have to then hit the light switch and come back to being the, you know, the world champion, the world conqueror, but then I should be able to switch my mindset and come back into this place over here. I think it was Marcus Aurelius that says, you know, I'm paraphrasing this, but like those who sequester themselves and retreat into the mountains to build themselves, like how weak does that really make you? Because you need the mountain to be that strong man. If you can just snap your fingers and go into that place rather than having to retreat to that place and you can be in that place at any given time, then you're really the strong person. 
So I try to have this dynamic of lifestyle so that I can be the person that can be humble and enjoyable and vulnerable and then also be this just unstoppable force at any given time. And if you said right now, like, Hunter, we're going to fight, I'm going to fight you. And if you're going to say, Hunter, at this moment in time, we're going to be best friends, I will be your best friend. I love that. What values do you live by? Passion and purpose. Those two. Basically, you need to have purpose in life, and then you, that, is, that is your center, and that is your ship, and then passion is your wind. You know, we build the ship that is going to be the thing that we exist on. It is the thing that we come to every single day. We wake up, we go to sleep on it every single day, and then the passion is going to be the direction of it. You know, you are a trainer, and you are an athlete, and you are a family man, but let's just say today you decided you wanted to wake up and do a podcast with me, and that is your passion for who you are in that existence for today. I'm going to really get my juices squeezed out of me by having this brilliant conversation with a parent that I respect and mutually. I woke up today and I was like, I'm going to go do that. I've got other shit to do, but my passion today is to connect with you. But I still exist as Hunter McIntyre as an athlete in this space. I still got to make my flight later, but my passion that gets me through today is the connection with you. And I'll have another couple of connections. And if you don't wake up every single day and have that passion that's part of that uh, environment, then you're fucked. Like, you have to be so excited. As soon as I get done with this meeting, I bounce back on the train. I go and have another meeting. I go see my friend Ben. It's, it is exhausting to get to Ben and get to this meeting and the next thing, but I'm excited, so I don't even notice the time that's clicking off on my watch. Mm-hmm. That's that passion I'm talking about. And when the... The keys are in the ignition of the monster truck and they go off and you got the new van. What does that van look like? What's going to fill the void of competing, high rocks, obstacle course racing, the last 15, 20 years of your life? Then what? Is it builder? Well, there's this, there's this kind of existence of stages. There's like the pupil, there's the warrior, there's the general, there's the guru. Pupil is somebody who is... Um, absorbing anything and hearing anything and experiencing anything. The warrior is now somebody who has built this, of that stuff that you've absorbed at a certain period in your life, you've now built this mindset and this attitude and approach to it, and now you have to go test it. You have to test it regularly and test it intensely. General has been the person who has existed in this place and now has been there and took information and now has brought it to the point where them being in this place is no longer a value. It's better for them to be above it and be able to help people hone themselves within this place. And then there's the guru who is no longer even a teacher, but is just a person who exists. And just by them existing, they're helping the world. I will remove myself from the warrior stage into the general stage where I want to teach. I want to help. I want to support. Um, You know, my supplement company is not necessarily a company of just like getting people to drink product. It's getting people to be educated, motivated, and prepared to dominate whatever they want. I just realized it was the best touch point that I could ever have in this world. Like I like coaching people, but I can help people more from the place of the the supplement company. And I love my coaching company and so on and so forth. But Builder was that place where I recognized, I was like, I could really help the world in this place. And I could really build something, a vessel that so many people could be affected by in a positive nature. That's business. Um, family is another massive thing for me. Like I, I spend as much time with my family as I possibly can. I'll create my own family and my own legacy. Um, I dream of like the four, five, six kids. Like I believe in bigger households. I was one of 
four. My dad was one of five. Mom was one of five. Um, that will be a massive part of my life. And I think like putting away the warrior mindset and stepping into this role will be very exciting. I'm not going to say it's not going to come without challenge because I will have to let go of the ego and watch people that are the newer, younger guys with better six packs, faster time, so on and so forth. And I'm going to have to be able to say, Hey, you know what? I lived in my time and space and I was the champion of that time. And I don't need to be it of this time. And I'll have to find a way to let go of that. Um, and that's a big worry of mine, but I've done the work to make sure I'm ready for when it comes. Yeah. One of the biggest inflection points of my career so far was moving from rugby player into trainer, gym owner, businessman, whatever you want to call it. And that identity change was, it was a period of time that I really struggled with, but I think wrapping it up is, I want to see you go and dominate more next year. I think that the sport of fitness, the sport of fitness racing needs people like you. I look at the rest of the field and I don't think anyone has a scratch on you. And I, and I don't say that lightly because I'm not someone who, like I said, will blow smoke up people's asses for the sake of it, but you're the real deal. I think seeing you today, speaking to you today makes me understand more so how you've got to where you've got to and just how serious you are. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, I want to see you crush it next year. I'll, I'll certainly do that just to make sure that um, I followed up I am when I said this whole th podcast, but um, it's respected mutually, dude. Like um, when I see people like you, I will go out of my way to learn and live with them. I think this is the most important thing. If anybody's listening to this, go out of your way to go be around people that impress you and go the extra mile because that's where I am, where I, why I am where I am today. Because I went the extra mile every single time. So I appreciate you having me. Respect, brother. Thanks, Sansa.